This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. On Money Talks, we discuss money news and take your questions about personal finance. For 15 years, we've provided free financial information for Mississippians. I hope you can join me, Dr. Nancy Lotridge-Anderson, co-host of Money Talks, Tuesdays at 9 a.m. or anytime on our podcast. Welcome to In Legal Terms from NPB Think Radio. It's the show all about you and your rights. Our host is Professor Richard Gershon of the University of Mississippi School of Law. I'm Liz Gill. Hello, Professor Gershon. Good morning, Liz. I hope your weekend was great. I hope you're off to a good start with your week. And, you know, uh, in September, it was National uh, National Service Dog Month. And October is uh, National uh, Disability Month. Uh, month uh, and uh, disability planning. And so next week, we're going to have our good friend and uh, frequent guest, Rick Courtney, on the show to talk about that. Um, and he's actually going to, he's here with us today, and he he uh, uh, connected us with Canine Companions, uh, which uh, is an organization that trains service dogs. And so it's great to welcome Robert Schwinn to the show. Mr. Schwinn is the National Legal Administrator at Canine Companions. And Mr. Schwinn, uh, good morning. You know, tell us a little bit about your background and how you became interested in supporting people who rely on companion dogs. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, my my pleasure to be with you. Um, um, yeah, so for, for me, it was a rather personal experience. Uh, my dad was a Marine Corps veteran who uh, became um, disabled after he was uh, shot in the Vietnam War and lost the the full use of his right leg. So, um, you know, growing up with my dad, um, disability was a personal experience for us. And, uh, when I was in law school, um, I, um, went to a couple different clinics, but the disability law program was really inspiring to me and, uh, having kind of a history of knowing what that was like, um, through my family experience, um, really propelled me to, to kind of choose that after, after law school. Um, so yeah, then I, I found Canon Companions. I happened to be up in Santa Rosa where we have our headquarters and, uh, they were looking for a legal services professional. And I, you know, I'm so happy that I've been able to, to work with Canon Companions. Well, and uh, you, you obviously do great work, and I want to ask you know, Rick Courtney. Good morning, Rick. Uh, good to have you with us as well. And um, your daughter uh, has a service. Are you going to tell us about that experience? Yeah, you had mentioned, uh, and good to be back with you again this morning, um, and thank Rob for coming on all the way from California. Um, the uh, experience, We have personal experience as well. Uh, with disability, and that's why you'd mentioned October is National Special Needs Law Month, and that's what we do in our law practice largely um, because of Melanie, our daughter. Uh, I've got twin daughters, and I think we've mentioned them on the show before. She has cerebral palsy, is a wheelchair user, lives at home with us still, works part-time in our law firm. Her sister is my office manager, so it's a family affair, and I can keep track of them really well. But Melanie has a service dog from Canine Companions. She got her first, after college, community college and working 
Um, there are things that she physically needs help with, um, picking up things, opening doors sometimes that she can't open or drawers that are too, too difficult. But we learned about Canine Companions, applied for a service dog, and back in 2007, we went to the Orlando Center there, and for two weeks, free of charge, they put us up and trained her and with several dogs and finally placed the, a black lab called Maydeen with Melanie, and Maydeen was her uh, helper for, I guess, almost 10 years. Maydeen passed away in 2016, but before she did, Melanie got a successor dog, her second canine companion's dog, and Turk has been with her since then. He's now nine years old. And uh, to watch an 80-pound Labrador retriever, when she says get and opens the hamper door on her clothes hamper, he turns into a snake and scoots up in there and grabs a sock out of the very back of it and comes back out and holds it until she says give. That's what they do for people. And not only for her is uh, he a physical help for things that she can't do, but he also is a, an, a social help and emotional help. She has some uh, startled effects of her cerebral palsy and he's a calming influence when she goes to the doctor she takes treatment a lot easier when he's sitting right there where she can just hold his leash or his collar so uh, wonderful things these dogs can do for people who have disabilities and some of the experiences we saw when she worked she was one of 11 people in her first class who got dogs she got a skilled service dog which is where the person with the disability actually handles the dog. There were some who couldn't verbally or physically handle a dog and give correction, but they got skilled companion dogs. And Rob probably can explain more about that too. And then there are some facility dogs. We have a facility dog at a rehab center here in Mississippi from Canine Companions that helps their therapists work with patients and motivate them by using the animal. It's just really a fine service that they do. Again, I said, the dog didn't cost us anything from Canine Companion, but I understand that they probably have about $50,000 invested in these dogs by the time they're placed with someone. So um, wonderful program. Glad to have Rob on and talk about this. And of course, we do run occasionally into uh People thinking he's an emotional support dog, and we'll talk a little more about the differences on that today, and um, hopefully some people get educated about these service animals. That's that would be the goal, and I'm glad that you're both here. And Rob, what about you know you, what you mentioned, uh, uh, you know, and Rick mentioned um, his daughter's disability. Um, and uh, veterans, you mentioned that one of the reasons you got into canine yeah. companions about primary reason. Who else does your organization help? Yeah, sure. Um, so we serve into um, adults, children, and uh, veterans with uh, all sorts of different disabilities. Our organization serves around upwards of 65 different disabilities. Some of those could be a physical disability. Some some could be an intellectual disability, something um, 
also might be like uh, if someone is uh, deaf or hard of hearing, we have a program to serve individuals um, like that. And so the the task work that our dogs can do is really the the life um, is really the life changing piece. Um, the the amount of things these dogs can do for people is is really amazing. Well, and Rick alluded to something that I, uh, you know that I find amazing as well. You don't charge families anything for um, for these dogs. So how do you do that? Yeah, absolutely. So we rely on the generous support of individual donors all across the country. Um, I think it's interesting that there's a conception out there that charities exist and are funded by governments and large businesses. And I'll tell you the truth about 8% of our funding comes from that. 92% of everything that we do is funded by individuals and their generosity. And so we couldn't do what we do without people who are committed to our mission um, and have chosen to give back. If you have a question about our topic today, we'd love for you to join in. You can send us an email with your questions to our address, legalterms at mpbonline.org. This is In Legal Terms. Now, not everybody has a chance to listen to our show live. So if you've missed any of our program, you can listen to the whole show at inlegalterms.mpbonline.org. Our host is Professor Richard Gershon from the University of Mississippi School of Law. I'm Liz Gill. If you would like to read up on Mississippi laws, I'll have a link to the 2013 Mississippi Code Title 43, Public Welfare, Chapter 6, Rights and Liabilities of Individuals with Disabilities, Article 5, Mississippi Support Animal Act. That'll be on our show's podcast information. We are talking about service animals today with our guest, Rick Courtney, attorney and friend of the show, and our new-to-the-show guest, Robert Schwinn, National Legal Administrator at Canine Companions. Let's go to the phones, and in Jackson, Rhonda has called in. Rhonda, what's your comment or question for us today? Um, my question is, do you or have you in the past provide animals for people with dementia, and kind of what would that look like? Rob, what uh, what about that? Sure, yeah. So we have provided service animals for people with intellectual disabilities. One of our requirements is that the person be able to handle the dog independently um, for a service animal if that is not the case. Um, we do provide service animals for um, that would also include a handler. Um, so, but I, I would think that for our program, having another, I think we would serve someone with dementia, but maybe another disability as well. So, if dementia is the primary disability, that might be. A little bit more difficult just because one of the things that we ask people when they apply for a service dog from us is what do they want their dog to do for them and i think that might be a difficult more difficult question to answer with that specific disability Rhonda, did that answer your question um, i was i was kind of formulating um a, a thought of you know if it was caught early enough having that animal 
um, put in place while the person still had the facilities uh, to be able to work with you and the, the animal at first so that it's more ingrained behavior. Um, that was kind of the direction I was thinking, more so than advanced dementia. Okay. Well, maybe, uh, Rob, would I understand that you mentioned a handler, would it, would you would need an individual also in the household along with, uh, that could be, um, mentally able to handle the, the dog in addition to the, the individual who might have a diminished capacity? Um, correct. And with a lot of disabilities, there is, of course, a range. Um, and so, where they are on that range of being able to handle the dog independently will kind of help determine if another person would need to be there. Um, but we do have dogs that um, are trained to, you know, retrieve people's, uh, you know, me- medication pill bottles out of drawers um, that are able to remind people on specific triggers when they may need to do something. So it's, it's certainly possible. Thank you, Rhonda. We appreciate you calling in. Thank you. And Liz, this is Rick, and I'm just going back to our experience with Melanie and her service dog. When we she was in her first class to get her dog, there was a young, uh, young teenage boy with autism spectrum disorders who was not verbally or cognitively able to engage and give direction to the dog at first, and and he was sort of distant. In his case, and then there was another adult who was in a reclined wheelchair from a spinal cord and traumatic brain injury. His wife was with him. In each of those cases, because the individual with the disability was not capable of giving verbal commands, you know, rationally giving verbal commands or physically giving a leash correction to the dog, they were getting what we were called companion dog, not a service dog. Now the dog had exactly the same training as my daughter's service animal, but it was a companion dog. And that means that dog was there to serve the person with the disability, but was being handled and given correction and direction by a facilitator, a family member. In the young boy's case, it was both of his parents who were trained in all the commands and the handling skills And in the other case, it was the wife of the gentleman who was disabled. So, you know, there are companion dogs that work for people with disabilities who don't have the capacity to do, uh, give the commands and corrections and direct the animal. Well, that's, let me, let me ask Ron about this because, um, so they, you have to train the dog, but you also have to train the people. It sounds like. That's correct. Well, that, that's important to know. And so, you know, if any listeners, are considering getting a service dog or a companion dog. Um, it's how you know how long does that training take for both the dog and the and the people? Sure. <clears throat> Excuse me. So for the for the dog, um, it's kind of a two step process. So for the dog, um, we have generous volunteers who agree to puppy raise the dog, and what that means is the dog is placed with them at around eight weeks 
and stays with them for about a year and a half. And they uh, teach the dog basic obedience commands. They help socialize the dog, which is so valuable because you can't rewind on the socialization piece. You can have a dog who's expertly trained in lots of commands, but if they weren't socialized properly it's still going to be difficult out in public. So our puppy raisers provide such a, such a amazing service. So that's that first year and a half of that dog's life. And then uh, the dog's handed back over to canine companions for six to nine months of professional training by our instructors. And that's that finishing process for everything that the puppy raisers started and the teaching of the really advanced commands that really need to be trained by a professional dog handler. And then um, after that, the dogs are um, placed with uh, individuals who are invited to team training um, to come to one of our centers for two weeks and at that point, the dogs are fully trained, and we just have to, to train the humans, right? Um, so uh, people come to our facility, um, all of which are fully accessible and, you know, dorm rooms on campus and everything so that they can understand what the dog um, is able to do for them and how to best handle that dog. That's, that's such important information that... Um... Really, just uh, it's a, it's a huge effort on, on the part of the organization and the family. Um, and, and, but, but and the two week training. This is Rick. The two week team training is free. I mean, if you can get down to well, get to the center where you are. Ours is Orlando, from Mississippi. Generally, um, if you can get there, they put you up and you provide your own food. But otherwise, you're there for two weeks, and it's a wonderful experience. We've got a call from Brookhaven. Wesley has called in. Uh, Wesley, what's your comment or question for our experts? We've got Richard Courtney, an attorney, and Robert Schwinn with Canine Companions talking about service animals. Uh, When uh, you go into stores or other places or onto a plane, they say that you can't have a, a... companion dog how can you identify that companion dog as being a service dog that you would need rob yeah sure um so the americans with disabilities act or the ada um, outlines a couple questions that individuals and businesses are allowed to ask when people enter places of public accommodation, like a store, movie theater, grocery, um, or a grocery store. And the two questions that you're allowed to ask are, um, is this a service animal required because of a disability? And what task does this service, does this dog do to help you with your disability? And the answers to those two questions really should provide enough to where the store owner or place of public accommodation can tell if that's a service animal. So let me give you an example. Um, you know, this is my dog, uh, Fluffy. It is a service animal. The person might say, this is a service animal. And the person might say, uh, this dog is trained to alert me to sounds in my environment. 
So we would say, okay, that sounds like a service animal. Um, another instance might be, um, someone still might say, yes, this is a service animal, but they, they might say something like, uh, this dog is my companion and is, is, um, my, my great friend and is trained to comfort me and be by my side at all times. And so you'll notice that second response doesn't have any trained task work and is based on the presence of the dog with them. And so that response would qualify as an emotional support animal and, uh, Emotional support animals don't have the same access rights as service animals in public. I have one question to follow up on on Wesley's thing. Can anyone question somebody, you know, a Karen? Can anybody question someone bringing an animal somewhere or should it be the staff or the owner? Um, Yeah, that's a great question. So it really should be the staff or the owner. Um, of the establishment um, doing that. Okay. Thanks, Wesley. We appreciate you calling in. Well, oh, okay. You know, thank you, Wesley. And, and uh, Rick and I have talked about uh, durable powers of attorney before that we think are should be valid. And all of a sudden you find out that a particular bank or a particular organization doesn't accept them. They, they want their own form. What happens if I've got my service dog and I, and I, you know, legitimate service dog, I'm trying to get on a plane or go to a restaurant and the owner simply says no, or the airline says no, do I have any rights at that point? Uh, yeah, you, you, cer- you certainly do. Um, although I will say there are plenty of misconceptions about um, the rights of service dog users and it is unfortunate that still to this day, I mean, the ADA has been around quite a long time, um, that people do still experience denials. Um, so there, there certainly are remedies. There's a civil rights line through the ADA that people can contact if they have uh, an issue with public access. But one of the things that we do here is we really do try and troubleshoot those um encounters with our clients and so if someone does have an issue um, they can call us and we try and help to the best of our ability and richard this is rick courtney Um, in the special education world there have been cases regarding children who have a uh, service animal service dog to take i'm not recalling the sites right off but there were a couple of cases in the last few years uh, where the child was denied to bring a, the dog to, to school. And so um, the uh, parents actually got some advocacy in the courts to enforce that right. And the courts upheld the right of the child once they realized this. This is a service animal. It performs a service for that addresses a disabling condition of this child. And so it meets that criteria and the school can't just exclude them. So sometimes you have to go to the Disability Rights Mississippi is our protection and advocacy system. They will advocate for people who have been discriminated against based on disability. And that would be a discrimination based on disability to exclude their service animal that's coming with them. 
You're listening to In Legal Terms on MPB Think Radio. Professor Richard Gershon is our expert host. I'm Liz Gill. We do hope you'll subscribe to our podcast. Hey, you can also find MPB Think Radio recordings on the website mpbonline.org slash radio. So if you would like to know more about Canine Companions, I'm going to have a link on this show's podcast from their website, canine.org. I don't know who they have to know to to get that easy to say website, canine.org. You can pre-order their 2024 puppy calendar. Oh my gosh, there's this puppy on the cover. He's so cute. You can sponsor a puppy or you can learn how to donate or volunteer. We're talking about service animals with our guest, Robert Schwinn, the National Legal Administrator at Canine Companions. He did mention about how it takes people, uh, you know, someone has to raise these little puppies for uh, a year and a half. And uh, then our other guest, Rick Courtney, whose uh, family is, his daughter does have a canine companion, talked about how expensive these dogs are. But uh, so the uh, organization relies on donations to make this happen. We have a call from Hattiesburg. Let's go to Rob. Rob, thanks for calling in to In Legal Terms today. What's your comment or question? All right, uh, this is a question. It's like a two-part question. When when pe- people are have a service or a companion dog, are they required to have a certified certificate on their person when they present themselves at a restaurant or store to to be authorized to enter? And does the dog have to have a dog collar tag, such as like they have for rabies? Will the dog have a tag around its collar, neck, certifying or saying that they are uh, proper authorized to be a service dog or are a companion dog? I'm going to hang up and listen. Thank you, Bob. We appreciate you calling in. Rob, what do you think about what Bob said? Um, yeah, that's a. I would like to thank the caller for his question. That's a um, something we get asked a lot. Um, so there is no federal or state registry for service animals. Then um, there is no requirement that any sort of paperwork be presented uh, to enter a business or establishment. Um, there are lots of businesses online that like to offer that kind of service hey pay this fee and you can get a certificate in the eyes of the law that certificate might as well be a blank piece of paper Um, what the law cares about is that number one you have a disability and number two that your dog is trained to perform specific task work to help you with your disability no certificate is going to help you with any of that in regards to whether a vest or collar is required, um, you know, I will say it is common practice for lots of service animals to wear a vest that says service animal. Uh, most dogs that are placed through an organization will wear a vest with the organization logo and the title service dog on it, but that is not a legal requirement. 
right? So um, dog doesn't have to be wearing anything other than dog should be leashed um, to enter an establishment. So there's no vest requirement that's present in the ADA. Let's go to, did you want to say something, Richard? No, I was just going to say, I think, I think what I, what I appreciate about the vest is that I know that that's an animal I shouldn't go up to as, as a pet and, and bother because that, that dog is in service. And, you know, my tendency with dogs is, hey, hey, how you doing, dog? You know, say hello to it. But so is that helpful? I mean, I think really you don't want people who are not being served by the service dog uh, disrupting that dog. That's right. This is Rick Courtney. When Melanie got her canine companion dog, they were great in training her how to interact with people in the community with the dog because they know, oh, this is a beautiful dog. People are going to want to come up. But the vest, we put a tag on it that said, please, service animal, please do not pet. You know, but she could say, would you like to pet my dog? If she's in stationary and not working, would you like to pet my dog? And it gives her an opportunity to be socially interactive with people and teach their kids and them about well, this is the proper etiquette for that. And they're good at trying to help people be diplomatic. You don't want to get in fights about being excluded from someplace, but you might have to just can't, you know, diplomatically advocate for the right to bring your dog in with you. If they say no, then you may just have to go somewhere else right then. We have a call from Rick who's on the road. Rick, we're glad you've joined In Legal Terms today. We're talking about service animals with attorney Rick Courtney and our guest, uh, Robert Schwinn from Canine Companions. What's your comment or question, Rick? Well, I'm in the market for a rescue dog, and I was curious, do service dogs have a rescue group that a person might attempt to adopt from? So, Rob, what happens when you uh, when a dog retires? Or doesn't make it into the program. I understand there are some dogs that are don't make it into the uh, program for training because of some minor issue here or there. And Rob probably knows about their adoption out program. Yeah, absolutely. So just uh, just over half of our dogs uh, make it through the program and are placed with an individual with a disability. Um, those very special puppy raisers, if you choose to raise a dog for canine companions, um, those puppy raisers get first dibs on those dogs if they do not pass our high standards. So what I like to say is you either, if you puppy raise with us, you either do something amazing and life-changing for someone else, you're going to get to meet them, hand that dog over to them, or if the dog doesn't make it, you'll get the best trained pet you've ever had. Thanks, Rick. We appreciate uh, uh, your call. Well, what about retired animals? Sure. Um so for dogs, service dogs that are retired from our program, you know, the most common thing is for them to be retired and to live out the rest of their wonderful lives with the people that they have served already. So it is the most common outcome for our dogs that are retired are that they get to be wonderful pet dogs in the homes of the people that they have lived with and served for many years. Good, thank you. This is uh, this is Rick again, and uh, to follow up on Rick's question, is there a an adoption program or someone in the Canine Companions 
world who could be contacted about getting a dog that is a COC change of career dog or something like that? Yeah, I would say that um, there are those opportunities. They are few and far between. And I would say that you know, if someone's really interested in our organization, they can um, call us up and volunteer and kind of establish a relationship with us. And then that might be possible. Well, that, that makes sense because you would want to know that person somewhat for that dog to be uh, placed with them. Absolutely. And just to mention one thing that I haven't talked about yet is we talk a lot about placing dogs with people with disabilities and certainly we do that but we also have a very extensive follow-up program so with us if you get a dog from us we're going to be talking to you we're going to be in relationship with you um yeah at least once a year we're going to be talking about your service animal um and what it what it does for you if there are additional commands you might want to train that that dog you know we have relationships with people and we follow up for the lifetime of that placement it's not just here's a great dog see you on your way and i think that's one of the things that helps us stand out as a service dog organization you're listening to In Legal Terms today. Thank you for being part of our show. If you've missed any of our program, don't forget you can listen to the whole show on the MPB Think Radio YouTube channel and the MPB Public Media app. Our host is Professor Richard Gershon from the University of Mississippi School of Law. I'm Liz Gill. At 11 a.m. Central on Tuesdays, following our over-the-air broadcast, you can hear Southern Remedies Relatively Speaking with Dr. Susan Buttress on MPB Think Radio. So it's always best to go to, to the official source for information, and I will have a link to the U.S. Department of Justice, Civil Rights Division, ADA Requirements, Service Animals page, where you can learn how service animals are defined, where they're allowed, and how they must behave. And as our guest has already said, according to the um, Department of Justice website, staff may ask two questions. One, is the dog a service animal required because of a disability? And two, what work or task has the dog been trained to perform? That guest we've been speaking with this hour is Robert Schwinn from the, Nas- the National Legal Administrator at Canine Companions. We also have our friend of the show, attorney Rick Courtney, whose daughter does have one of these animals. And I think this all follows in to a, a question from one of our callers from Illinois. It's Karen. Uh, we're glad you've called in today. What is your comment or question? My, my question is, it, there is doesn't appear in this to be any, I, I know there was a, that the handler should have complete control of the dog, but what, what prevents somebody from just saying, this is a service dog, and, and insisting that they're really not service dogs but pets? gets on an airplane or into a restaurant and they really don't have complete control so i'm i'm asking i'm very pro service dogs but i have been in a walmart store with someone uh, who had a legitimate service dog and then someone who didn't and that dog went ballistic 
with uh, and, and of course we just moved away from from where that was. But there's no way that 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 handler had control, and it's unlikely that the dog was a legitimate service dog. There's no recourse for the shop owner. That's my question. How do you know beyond that? Thanks, Karen. Yeah, the folks that have to spoil everything for the rest of us. Sure. Go ahead, Rob. Um, Yeah, what I was going to say there is for us, you know, the dog's behavior is really the key indicator of of whether a service animal has been properly trained and trained to be in public. So if you are in a place um, like a store um, and a service animal is not under control, um, whether that is um, the dog is displaying aggressive tendencies, uh, lunging, barking, snarling, growling. Um, you know, it is okay. uh, the ADA does have provisions in its code that allow individuals um, who own that shop to say, you know, excuse me, your dog is not behaving as it should. It's not under control. And I'm going to ask you to leave with the service animal um, or the animal that's that's not in control. So they can be asked to leave. Even if the service animal is having what some might call an off day, um, you know, that animal can be asked to leave. It's important to note that the shop still must provide services to that individual but not with the dog present. So service animals, when they are not behaving, um, can be asked to leave. And the, and the answer to her initial question, what's to stop anyone from saying, my dog is a service dog? Nothing. Anybody can claim anything when they go into an establishment. It may not be true, uh, but they can say that. And then the behavior of the animal, the whether it is actually performing you know, task work for a disability, that's to be determined. So, Thanks, Karen, for calling in. We also had another caller who couldn't stay on the line who, I guess, you know, how if service dogs are, are treated differently from other dogs, do they have to wear like a, a rabies tag like other dogs do? I guess they have to. I don't know. Sure. Yeah, it is okay for... Uh, a, you know, a county or city to require that the dog be both licensed and have its vaccinations up to date with something like a rabies vaccine. Anything that would require the dog to be registered specifically as a service animal is going to be voluntary and not allowed to be required by law. Yeah, well, that's um, it's good to know. I think people need to know that you you, you mentioned. Uh, emotional support dogs before, are they trained at all or do they have to be trained? You know, there's no formal requirement for emotional support animals to be trained to a certain standard. Many get basic obedience training. Um, And, you know, I just want to say emotional support animals can provide a lot of value to individuals. And there's, you know, Certainly, we don't have a grudge against ESAs or emotional support animals. They can provide a lot of value to people. They're just not the same as service animals. They have different protections, different training requirements, and that's why they are allowed to go different places. And one one area to, to address that, too, is in the housing law. 
uh, housing, since you're going to be in your own home with a dog and not so much interacting with public, I think there's a little bit more relaxation of some of the law legal requirements and some housing uh, uh, entities may be give a reasonable accommodation to someone for an emotional support animal and not, you know, exclude them as a pet uh, where because there have been some cases where they had to allow emotional support animal because it did provide a service for that person, but it was not a service animal. And so a little bit more expanded opportunity for emotional support animals in the housing scenario, but not in airline travel and not in public accommodation. That's correct. Yeah. Could could a um, landlord nonetheless charge a pet deposit? For, for an emotional support animal or a service animal, um, you know, maybe a refundable deposit. Is that allowable? No, deposits are not allowable under the, the Fair Housing Act. You know, it is important to say, because we do hear from landlords sometimes, um, it is important to say that individuals are responsible for the actions of their service animal, right? So if they, if the service animal causes some sort of damage to the place where they're living or the ESA, um, then they're responsible for that damage. But if it's a deposit, um, you know, most likely like for incidental pet hair or something like that, that's, that's not going to be allowable. Well, and uh, let's, let's, we don't have a lot of time, but so, so I'm sure people out there hearing the show will think, well, maybe I can apply uh, for a canine companion dog how do they um, do that? How long is the application process take? Yeah, sure. We certainly welcome people to apply. We have an application that's available online. Um, but if people are curious, they can call one of our centers and ask them, talk to a real human. That's a, that's allowable as well. <laughs> um, the process for the application takes about two to six months, depending on the time because we want to get your information we'll send you an application talk to you on the phone and and this is all because we serve lots of different disabilities and so we're trying to figure out how we can best serve you and so one of the questions we do like to ask is what would you like the service animal to do for you because our service animals really are task work based and so you know that really helps us determine um, if you're going to be a good fit for our program. So after that telephone interview, we exchange information, usually um, some medical reference forms, and then uh, we meet you in person. We do a personal interview, um, hear about your story, and try to establish that relationship. Because if we're going to work together for a long time, we, we really would like to to know you. And then after that, that's pretty much the conclusion of the application process and you're on the list and then you would get invited to team training when your name comes up on the list. This has been such a fantastic show. And as Professor Gershon says at the end of every hour, I wish we had another hour to continue. So, uh, uh, Rob, thank you so much for being on our show today. Absolutely. An honor and a pleasure. Oh, Rick, we're always glad when you can stop by. Thank you. Thank you. Glad to be here. 
we've had our guest Robert Schwinn from Canine Companions and Rick Courtney, uh, attorney in Mississippi, on our show. And our rest of our MPB team is Abram Nanny, who is the board engineer and our podcast producer. So for Professor Richard Gershon, who hosts from the University of Mississippi School of Law, I'm Liz Gill. Join us next Tuesday at 10 a.m. Central for In Legal Terms on MPB Think Radio. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. We'll be right back.